Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church, and Pastor Chris Hemelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today, we're talking about the fundamentalist, modernist controversy. Why are we talking about that, Bethany? Because you touched on it in a sermon, and somebody wrote in and asked us, well, asked you to talk more about it. Asked us to talk more about it, so everybody gets dragged into my us history nerdiness, which is great. So, Bethany, let's read what the listener wrote in. Yep. They said, last Sunday, Bob briefly talked about the split that happened in the American church in the 1920s between liberals and fundamentalists. I think it would be great to have a podcast or two dedicated to that subject, its history, and how it affects the church today. First what of all, you? you'd a have like two-sentence email. Yes, that's a great email. Fantastic email. So that's good. But he said a podcaster, too. If, if you had your way, this would be like seven. Eight. We could go so deep down this rabbit hole. I History, have in front of part me, nine. I have in front of me some resources that I got off you my do. shelf. I have the Zondervan Charts of Modern and Postmodern Church History by John Hanna. Yeah, I don't have that. And also the Craigle Pictorial Guide to Church History from John Hanna. I don't have that either. John, John Hanna was my favorite church history uh, prof. And then I have George Marsden's book, Understanding Fundamentalism and Evangelicalism. Wow, that's all the thicker that book is? Yeah, it's probably the industry standard on this topic. I mean, George yeah. Marsden is the guru on this. And I thought that book would have been a lot thicker, but... See, now you... He's like, a good you, writer, you so probably read this by it. tomorrow. Yeah. Also, back, I want that book. back in the day, we had Hannah come here. Yeah, we did. John Hannah oh, taught nice. a conference on church history at Quorum Dale years and years ago. And uh, it was wonderful. And that's where I, that's actually where I bought these books. There was a book table, and I was like, well, I obviously need those. So the listener asked, hey, tell me more about the fun- fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 1920s. And I think the reason that this listener is interested in that is because in a sermon, I just basically said, hey, we're living downstream from this, and it affects how we hear things, and it, it, it affects our cultural understanding of things. Uh, the, the text I was preaching on was in James 1, where James says, uh, you know, True religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And I just said, hey, when you hear keep yourself unstained by the world, it's impossible for you not to hear that with the overtones of the the heritage of fundamentalism that, that comes to us from the 1920s. So I'm going to try not to nerd out too much, but you guys will have to be my accountability partners on that because I, Man, could, we'll try. I could do a long podcast on this. Do you like this particular time and is there something about this time of history? No, I just think it, it maps onto our current reality and especially mine, because my grandfather, my, my maternal grandfather was a crunchy fundamentalist in a, in all the, in ways that were really endearing, but also in ways that were like, Oh, well that's, he was a fighter. You know, he was a guy that like, if you read Revelation 20 and you didn't believe that meant a literal thousand years, then you didn't believe in the authority of the Bible. Oh, no. So he, there's no amillennial, premillennial, preterism. There's none of that. You're, you're, either, you're either pre-mill or you're nothing. You're either a Christian or you're not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and, I, and I loved my grandfather, but all of that, like that sort of fighting spirit about the words of the Bible— were because he grew up in this in in the aftermath of this controversy, and it really did define American Christianity for half a century, and we still live with the uh, the shadows of it today. So, for a lot of people who who would call themselves or who grew up in a quote unquote evangelical tradition, this matters that you know this part of your history because it does 
shape how this tradition experiences in America. Another way you could ask it is just this. If you go outside of America, like you go to Australia, or you go to England, or you go to anywhere in Europe, evangelicals there are really nice people. And then in America, evangelical, like there's this entrenchment with politics and like global evangelicals always ask like, why are you evangelicals in America so weird about stuff? Like, why do you fight about Trump and you want to fight about immigration and everything's political all the time? Well, there's a reason for that. And honestly, all of that ties back to the 1920s. And, And so American evangelicalism has a unique history here that I think it helps us to understand. For a time, I went to a church called the Billy Sunday Memorial Tabernacle. Wow. Amazing. I mean, there was a monument to one of the yeah. fundamentalist yeah. evangelists. Yeah. I mean, Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday. Okay, so let's dial the clock back, and let me try to do my best to, I mean, we're talking about 100 years ago. So let me, let me set up what's happening at that time in history, because it, it matters for how we get to where we are. Um, the 19th century as a whole, the, the entire 1800s in theology, was was sort of characterized by the rise of what would be called modern liberalism. And and when I say that, I'm not using a political term. I'm saying like any historical class you take or theology class you take, this is the language that's used in theology, the rise of modern liberalism. It ties to figures like Schleiermacher and Ritschel and many scholars who worked primarily in Germany and who... Um, we're trying to basically recast the Christian faith less as a question of history and more as a, as a, a faith of subjective experience. Uh, Schleiermacher was famous for saying that really what Christianity is, is it's a feeling of absolute dependence. That's what real Christianity is. It doesn't matter if everything happened in history the way the Bible says it did or not. What matters is that you feel absolutely dependent on God. Um, and at the same, so, so then in 1869, of course, you have Darwin's Origin of the Species, which we're very familiar with now, but that was a, a, a world-changing event to have a paradigm of history and how we got to where we are in the world that did not require a creator. And so with German higher criticism and the rise of liberal theology and Darwin, you get to the end of the 1800s and Christianity as a whole in terms of like orthodox Bible-believing, Protestant, gospel-preaching Christianity was, it felt like about to collapse. Let me read you what Marsden says about this period in history. Uh, Perhaps the most important point for understanding theological liberalism or modernism is that it was a movement designed to save Protestantism. The generation of Protestants that came of age between 1865 and 1917 were faced with the most profound challenges to their faith. Darwinism and higher criticism were challenging the authority of the Bible, and the new historical, sociological, and Freudian psychological ways of thinking were revolutionizing thought at almost every level. Immense social changes plus rapid secularization, especially in science and higher education, were eroding Protestantism's practical dominance. So he names there, you got Darwin, you got higher criticism, you have the, the Industrial Revolution, you have Freud, you have World War I, like all of that's happening in the span of 40 years. And so it's just a massive upheaval for, for people who just in a very simple way were brought up to believe that the Bible is true. 
you could not possibly keep up fast enough with all the ways that that was under threat. Everything from is its uh, narrative about history true to is its understanding of human psychology true to is its does it do enough justice to the problem of evil? There are all these things going on in the world that um, that make it really challenging. And so the the movement of modernism, what's called modernism or or um, liberalism, was a movement to save Christianity or to save Protestantism. Now, keep in mind, in America, Protestantism is the dominant religion. So you had very few Roman Catholics in America. And most of the Roman Catholics who were in America were immigrants from either Italy or Ireland. So you had Roman Catholicism at this time in history tended to be a very um, insular faith connected to particular people who had immigrated from certain parts in the world where that religion was very prominent. But by and large, if you asked what defined America, it was Methodism, right, under John Wesley and the circuit riders. It was Congregationalism going all the way back to Jonathan Edwards. It was Presbyterianism going all the way back to the Puritans, and it was Baptists. And so, by and large, if you were a Christian in America, you were most likely a Protestant. Well, in the 1920s, every Protestant domination that existed was fraught by this tension between what were called evangelicals and what were called liberals. Those words didn't mean exactly what they mean today. But basically, in the 1920s, if you were an evangelical Presbyterian or Baptist or uh, Methodist or whatever, it meant you, you believed in the gospel and the authority of the Bible. And if you were a liberal, it meant you kind of believed, you were, you were starting to lean in the direction that maybe the Bible's not true, but we should still be like Jesus. Kind of a social gospel kind of way of thinking. And um, the, the famous um, f- theological way of representing this it comes to us from Adolf von Harnack who taught in Germany in the early 1900s. And his, his metaphor, which makes really good sense for people in Nebraska, was the kernel and the husk. So think about a corn, you, you know, cob, a cob of corn with Let's a husk go. around it, right? I mean, we are the corn huskers. And Harnack would say, hey, you have to separate the kernel from the husk. Like what, what we have in the Bible is kernel and husk, and you got to learn how to take the husk off and get to the kernel. The kernel is the social teachings of Christianity, the ethic of Christianity, the love your fellow man and, you know, love the Lord your God. The husk is all the supernatural stuff, all the miracles, all the, you know, the resurrection accounts, the idea that Jesus is the son of God. All of that stuff needs to be stripped away because it had been added later by, you know, Christians who came later. Um, It's not the original teachings of Jesus. That paradigm, Harnack taught broadly, and he was a widely, uh, if you were studying theology in the early 1900s, Adolf von Harnack was the guy. I mean, he was like the man in this field, and his lectures in the University of Berlin were packed out. It was like people standing room only to go hear a guy lecture about this stuff because it was it was paradigm shifting for many people. So that was what was creeping into all the denominations in American Protestantism. In reaction to that, um, or actually, it might, well, it, it's true that it was in reaction to it, but there was other things going on. So you had in 1923... J. Gresham Machen wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, which was sort of like him throwing down the gauntlet and being like, all right, let's have a fight. Now, Machen was a professor at Princeton Seminary, which was one of the old, highly reputed institutions that went all the way back to New England and the Puritans. And he was an academic, intellectual, highly respected person. His book was basically, <laughs> he basically was telling the liberals, 
um, hey, you're inventing a new religion. This is not Christianity. It's something else. You need to go start a different thing because what we're committed to is Christianity. I mean, he was just doing Apostles' Creed stuff, but he was a little bit of a fighter, and he kind of threw down the gauntlet and said, and the book is called Christianity and Liberalism because he was saying these are two different things. You either can be a Christian or you can be a liberal. There's no such thing as a liberal Christian because liberalism is a whole different, you're, it's a whole different worldview. You don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You don't believe in the miracles. You have crossed the line from affirming the Apostles' Creed and you're no longer a Christian. In 1925, two years later, you had the Scopes Monkey Trial, which is a sort of like a publicity stunt thing in Tennessee that was a real trial but it was a science teacher who was put on trial for teaching evolution in a state that had passed a law that you couldn't teach evolution. And so it was, uh, you know, for the sake of newspapers and print media, it was sort of hyped up the way that a presidential debate would be today or something like that. I can't even imagine what that would have been like in today's culture. I mean, seriously. Oh, man. And so the Scopes Monkey Trial was like this. um, It made people who believed that evolution was not true look really bad. Now, a lot of that was just the, what the media did with it. The trial itself was a pretty straightforward question of, you know, did this guy violate the state law or didn't he? But more importantly, it made anyone who held to like a biblical view of creation look like an idiot in the eyes of the public. And so in, in those things happened in 1923, 1925. In the 1920s, every single denomination is fragmenting and experiencing this tension between liberals and and fundamentalist. Now, the word fundamentalist, if you tra- if you read people who write about this, like Marzin would say, hey, evangelical, the idea of there being an evangelical tradition in Protestantism goes all the way back to the Reformation. Evangelical is a word, like evangel is just the word for gospel. And so that heritage is a deeply Protestant heritage. What happened in the 1920s is that the evangelicals lost the battle for all of the institutions. So you know, if you were, let's say you were um, on staff at Princeton Seminary, the question was, are we going to be a liberal institution or are we going to be evangelical? Well, the evangelicals lost those battles over about 10 or 20 years. And so what you had was all the, inst- all the institutional credibility, all the seminaries, the large churches and parishes in places like New York City, the um, printing houses, all of these places the liberals gained control of. So they had all the institutional credibility attached to American Protestant Christianity. What the, what the people who lost all those battles ended up doing was they became the fundamentalists because they, they someone, I can't remember who the person was, sort of said, hey, published a pamphlet basically saying, here's the fundamentals of Christian faith. And it was stuff like the authority of the Bible, the resurrection of Christ, some basic stuff. But they started rallying around and calling themselves fundamentalists as a way of distinguishing themselves from liberals. Um, Dusty, our heritage, uh, Dusty and I both worked for a time at a church here in Omaha that's 100 years old, and that began as a tent revival meeting for a bunch of Protestants in Omaha, Nebraska, who were attending churches that were liberal. And what would happen at that time it is if you're a member at Coons Lutheran Church or First Presbyterian Church or First Baptist Church, and the pastor there was liberal, then you went to church there because you were a good church-going Presbyterian. But then in the afternoon, you went to the tent meeting where we preached the gospel. And it was just like a, it was like a parachurch ministry almost. It was like a thing that if you were an evangelical or a fundamentalist, you, you found another way to get together with people who believed the Bible and to celebrate the gospel 
in a way that you still were a part of the church that you were. You were faithful of. to it because your family probably right. was faithful to it, but you had to go somewhere to supplement your biblical yeah. roots. Yep. So what happened, the, the end of 1929, I mean, think about what's happening then, stock market crash, right? Um, the rise of Hitler in Germany shortly will come in the early 30s. In that season of time, um, all of the f- remaining evangelical professors at Princeton Seminary depart and start Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. The real Christians. So, yeah, they basically said, okay, we have to go start a new institution. Um, but the fundament- that's, the, that's like the only institution that was successfully started in that period. There were, there were not many. What most of the fundamentalists did was they basically created this very grassroots, um, non-institutional movement that was these little Bible institutes. Like there's a there's some around here to this day in South Dakota, Nebraska. There's these little Bible institutes, like Grace College of the Bible was one of these. It started out as Grace Bible Institute in 1940-something. That was just a way to say, well, I mean, we're not sending our kids off to Princeton, so we're going to have to figure out a way to teach them the Bible. And so they would just, in this grassroots way, they started these little Bible institutes, and it was in their own little churches. And if you've ever been to a, you know, a church more in the heritage of fundamentalism, it's usually a pretty simple building. It's not like an ornate structure in the downtown somewhere. It's like a little brick building that was built in the 30s or 40s or 50s by some people who believed the Bible and wanted to have a place to gather and worship Jesus. So the, the institutional heft and credibility remained with liberal Christianity. Um, the fundamentalists left the denominations largely and started their own little churches and whatever. And so they would usually be called XYZ Bible Church or, you know, names that were just sort of like communicated, hey, we believe the Bible. Um, And that's, that was the heritage for the 1930s and 1940s. So realize we have a world war in there. We have a stock market crash in there. There's a lot of things going on in the world in this time. Um, if you were, let's say, let's, let's pick a year like 1950. Okay. We're post World War II. You're a Christian in 1950. The churches in places like New York city and Chicago that are big and thriving are all liberal churches where the guys are basically preaching sermons that are like, we should be good to each other. That's what was on the ascendancy. That's what was on the rise. If you read Ross Douthat's book, a nation of heretics, he chronicles this whole reality that in the middle of the 20th century, everything in the, the ascendant truth in America was like this social gospel, liberal theology. It looked like this was just taking over the world. And the fundamentalists were just getting together with their little church of 80 people and worshiping Jesus. Were there some big churches or some big names then that I would know? Well, I mean, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that. Or that like had more influence than others. No. I mean, the fundamentalists were like this grassroots, backwoods, people did not associate them with anything credible. Didn't it largely gravitate south, too? It largely gravitated south, and I mentioned this in the sermon. The fundamentalists developed this doctrine of secondary separation, where because they were so upset with how liberalism has, had infected everything, all the seminaries, all the, all the churches— they basically decided if we want to keep our faith in Jesus and be pure and upright, we need to separate from anyone who's worldly. 
So there was this deep strain of sort of like moralism and legalism that was attached to fundamentalism. And I mean, I, I like extra Christianity. Yeah. It's like, listen, my grandmother who is now deceased and was a wonderful human being and loved the Lord Jesus Christ with all of her being would you could not have a deck of cards in my grandmother's prayer. Like if you showed up at Christmas and you got out a deck of playing cards, she get out. She would have a very stern conversation with you because we don't do that in our house because that's not what Christians do because playing cards are associated with gambling and with all kinds of seedy practices that we need to separate from. And so that, and that wasn't my grandmother, like she was not a legalistic person, but just in her mind, it was very clear that like cards belong with worldly people and we belong with Jesus. And so there was this sort of strong separation between anything considered worldly and what it meant to be a Christian. Um, what you had now, I, I picked 1950 for a reason, because what happened then is three key figures got together, Carl Henry, Billy Graham, yeah, and I'm forget, I'm gonna forget that. the third. I'm I'm gonna name the third one wrong, but um, I'm blanking on the name now. But these people got together and basically said, "Hey, if if the gospel's going to thrive in our generation, we can't be separatists. We've got to figure out how to basically build some parallel institutions." And so they started Christianity Today. They started um, institutions like Fuller Seminary. There was a whole bunch of, in the 1950s and 60s, some of the people who would have considered themselves fundamentalists basically said, we need to not be separatists. We need to figure out how to have, how to build institutions that actually engage culture and that we're not just sort of putting our head in the sand and saying, let's not be worldly, but that we're trying to actually regain cultural prominence and have a meaningful voice in society. So we need a publishing agency, Christianity Today. We need a preacher, Billy Graham. Uh, we need some seminaries and institutions, um, and and those were the institutions that got created out of this little nexus of what what we would now call like modern evangelicalism. So when we use the word evangelical around this table, we're sort of connecting ourselves to that tradition, which started in the 1950s, and which is a more world affirming version of conservative Orthodox Christianity. Um, but alongside that, you still had fundamentalists who thought those people were sellouts, and that. Billy Graham was, you know, because Off he hung out, yeah, because he hung out with Catholics and you know went and met with the president and things like that. That he was too into the world, and so you still had these strains of fundamentalism, you know, down to the current day. Now, in the current day, I would say they're they're getting smaller and smaller. But my point is that if you live any time past the 1950s, you live in the heritage in in a Protestant American Christianity that has three streams in it. There's a liberal stream, there's a fundamentalist stream, and there's more of an evangelical stream. Now, the other interesting thing that happened is in the 60s and 70s, so if, if in the 50s, and Ross, Dal Ross Douthat's book, a nation, uh, what is it called? Bad Religion is the name of the book. I, the subtitle is How We Became a Nation of Heretics, but the title of the book is Bad Religion. He basically chronicles in the 1950s, right after World War II, you know, liberal theology was all the rage and it was the liberal churches that were growing and the fundamentalists were just seen as these backwater people who like believed in old hick superstitious stuff from the past. Well, then in the sixties and seventies, all the liberal churches started dying. I mean, if you look at the statistics of from 1960 to 1990, what happened in Presbyterianism, 
Baptist churches, Methodism, Lutheran, all the traditions that had sort of embraced liberal theology just tanked. And the churches that grew were evangelical. And you have the Jesus movement. Right. You had the Jesus movement. You had these massive sort of revivals among hippies, and you had the rise of the Pentecostals. And so you had actually this upsurge of real Bible-believing Orthodox Christianity that, that all the people who had sort of bought into, like, the wave of the future is we have to be liberal, we have to give up on the resurrection and on miracles, and we need to just sort of say, be nice to each other and, you know, live a good life like Jesus did. All the people that believed that was the future, it looked like that was true for about 30 years, and then it all fell apart. And so what we're living with now is, you know, who knows where we're headed in the next decade or so. But what's happening now, I think, is this um, evangelicalism or evangelical Christianity, evangelical called Protestant Christianity in America, sort of having this moment of redefine, of asking like, who are we now? You know, what, what, what is this tradition going to mean? Because it has meant because of its ascendancy in the seventies and eighties, it did develop some cultural capital. It did develop some political influence. Um, you had presidents like Jimmy Carter, who, who said he was an evangelical and who identified himself with that movement and was from the South in Georgia. And so, um, you had Ronald Reagan, who sort of, again, if he if he wouldn't have called himself an evangelical, I don't think he would have, but he at least was very friendly with people like Billy Graham and, you know, friendly with those causes. So we certainly live now downstream from some of those political alliances and so forth. But we also live with this heritage of a fundamentalism that rightly wanted to hold to orthodox doctrine but that its approach to culture was the world is bad, stay away from those people. And so you kind of have, there's a reason why in American Christianity, and I think this is true for all of our lives in, in the circles that we've run in, you're always going to meet people who those two things go together, like believing the Bible and like separating from the world kind of seem like they're enmeshed in weird ways, you know, where it's like, um, if we're really Bible-believing people, then we should also not be connected to people who don't believe like us, you know, because we need to sort of separate from them. And I, I'm saying all of that ties back to the 1920s and into that split in American Protestant Christianity. How does that dynamic that you just described, the separatism, uh, intersect with the institution-building angle? Because it, 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 well, they, they not build them, but it seemed to be a different way of building them. Well, I think what happened is from 1930 to 1950, people like Carl Henry and Billy Graham said, yeah, we have to build in. We can't be anti-institution. And so there was an, in, but I, what I'm saying is there have always been fundamentalists who have been skeptical of any kind of cultural power, mm-hmm. any kind of institution building. I mean, you know, if I dial the clock back to the 1990s when sort of like the seeker-sensitive movement was the institutional thing and Willow Creek Church and every, you know, all the institutions were like Saddleback and Willow Creek and, you know, those were the institutions that everybody was really excited about in evangelical Christianity. There was always fundamentalist churches in South Dakota and Nebraska and Iowa that were like, yeah, yeah, we're not, whatever that is, we're not doing that. And it had less to do with theology. Way too many TVs. More to, yeah, less to do with theology and more to do with like, yeah, obviously they're compromising with the world because, you know, they're, People like them. 
magazines are, magazines are writing about the them. Show, yeah, so. they're on the Today Show. They must be, you know, liberals. So there's always been this sort of skeptical stream in fundamentalism that frowned on those things. But there's also been, I, I'm saying in this broader evangelical stream, uh, people who I think rightly said, no, no, we have to care about institutions, culture engagement, um, the right kind of influence. Um, we could do a whole nother podcast on Karl Barth and how he plays into the equation here, because I think he's the one that actually put the bomb in liberalism and blew it up from a theology standpoint, which was hugely helpful to the evangelical cause. Um, no one would call Karl Barth an evangelical, but what he was not was a liberal. And he basically just took an ax to liberal theology and cut it all down. And I actually think part of his, part of the decline of it in the sixties and seventies had to do with what Barth did to it in his ability to just say, yeah, this is not, this can't sustain itself. You, we can't build anything on liberal theology. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what are we doing here? And <laughs> so thankfully there were people still doing work in high-level academic institutions to critique liberals. It just wasn't the fundamentalists. And so in America, this is why, like, American evangelicals, um, there's a Owen Strand's book. Um, uh, he has a he has a book that he wrote on Harold John Ockengay. I can't remember the name of the book, but he sort of chronicles that what happened is uh, in the 1940s when World War II was happening, and so all the American GIs had to get everybody from age 18 to 22 was overseas fighting the war. Harvard University still needed students. And so they accepted all these evangelical guys to do PhDs at Harvard. And those guys basically saw their task as, okay, now we're going to have cultural credibility. So we're going to get Harvard PhDs and then we're going to go teach at places and basically like start to rebuild some cultural influence for evangelicals. And it, it just happened to be that because the war <laughs> made Harvard desperate for students, they they were willing to take some students that maybe they would have figured weren't liberal enough, Yeah. but they actually took them and gave them PhDs. And that's guys like Meredith Klein and guys who have done really, really important research in biblical studies yeah. in the last 60 or 70 years. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is the era Bavink was doing yeah. a lot of his work. And what's, what's also interesting too, is he, he came over to the U S a couple of times. And one of the times he came over, it, you know, he's a, very generous, gracious guy, but he, he did critique some of the, I think what we call kind of more the revivalist kind of fundamentalist like D.L. Moody yep. because of their approach and because they, they weren't, I mean, Bob Inc. was, Hey, let's build institutions. Let's, um, you know, work within the culture to, I mean, he was a statesman and a theology professor and he saw that trend away from, it was more the evangelistic revivalism. Yep. Now he was an evangelical by our definition. But he, he saw exactly what you're talking about, that there, there's a particular strand of that fundamentalism that he thought wasn't helpful because it, it was more, it kind of had this revivalistic flair, but it wasn't establishing roots. Yes, it, it was simply yeah, reactionary. Yeah, exactly. And What are you? Not a liberal. Yeah. That's what I am. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. If yeah. you ask what a fundamentalist is, the answer is they're not a liberal. Yeah. And, and yeah. It's fascinating. I got rules about that. Too, because if you look at, some of the fruit of that, especially, I mean, even like a guy like Billy Graham, I mean, he's one of the greatest evangelists the church has ever had. And, you know, his impact in the United States was huge, but 
But if we were to critique Billy Graham in some ways or critique some of that movement, big on evangelism, not so great on discipleship. Yeah, terrible on discipleship. Yeah, great on evangelism and preaching the gospel, not great at ecclesiology and, right. and kind of the, the groundwork of institution building that becomes important. So it, that, that, and I think that goes back to my original question is like, I'd never really thought about it at that level of all that was going on and how the kind of the view of institution building and how that played out. Cause even uh, with Machen, I mean, he was trying to save Princeton. Yeah, he was. And uh, a lot of the work he was doing was like fight within the Presbyterian church at the time, which was the catalyst for a lot of this. Yes. But what did he do? He, let's go start another institution, like you pointed out. And so it, it's fascinating the way these things played out. And if had such, you know, one group had to, they decided to do X versus this, you know, just the, the ways that history could have gone differently in some ways. It's fascinating. Well, and, and the fundamentalist, I mean, tying back to our last podcast about like the Bible as literature, right? Those categories would have been brand new to most fundamentalists mm-hmm. because of because all the fundamentalists wanted to do was fight for the truthfulness of the Bible because that's where the fight was. Yeah, the fight was over. Did the miracles happen? You know, are the gospels true? Can we trust the scriptures? And so that's literally that was the fight in American Christianity for about fifty years was just about is the Bible true? And because that was the fight, no one cared about the literary quality. Yeah, <laughs> no yeah. one cared about like yeah. the literary qualities of Exodus. It was just like, you know what? Is it true or not? Like that's yeah. the fight we need to have. And the bad news about that is the fundamentalists so narrowed the the ground they were fighting on that they really they lacked Boving's ability to see the broader scale of things and say, Hey, look, let's not just fight for truth. Let's also fight for honor and cultural capital and and institutions and like let's let's carry on a broader apologetic yeah than yeah, just yeah. at this point yeah but that's where um because that's where the fight was that's where the fight stayed um and there was you know there was much good that came out of fundamentalism I mean, my my heritage is very much there and a lot of this part of the country like a lot of the healthy churches have roots somehow in fundamentalism because that's the only route you can have. You're either your roots are either in our church was around back in the days when the liberals were taking over, and it's just been renewed since then. So some of the you know some of the historic churches that have been around for 125 years, they went through that journey where it's like there was a liberal pastor for a while, and then there was a renewal, and now they're preaching the gospel again. But if that's not your story, and you're a Bible teaching church, probably your heritage is fundamentalism somehow because that's that's the only other heritage there was, you know. Um, yeah, you're not too many generations that's away from, from. A, yeah. a crunchy fundamentalist. Yeah, I so, mean that's that's my wife's story. I yeah. mean she she comes out of a a strong stream of fundamentalism. Yeah, well, and it's part of why part of my passion for my ministry and for our work at Quorumdale and more broadly is just I want to recover a fuller history, because I think where we win is by going back to people like Bovink, back to the Reformation heritage, and saying, hey, our history is older than 1920. You know, like a lot of the crunchiness that is connected to some of American Christianity is just that we've been, (laughs) we were fighting about stuff for a while, you know, and we became fighters. And I mean, my grandfather is just like, he's that guy, man. He was, he would like fight with you about, you know, the Bible. And that was kind of, you know, but he, he kind of had that crusty, like crunchy, you know, don't start a fight with me about revelation because you're probably yeah. heretic, you know. Well, Marsden on page one says a fundamentalist is an evangelical who is angry about something. There you go. 
So, Sentence one, page one. <laughs> <laughs> so fu- uh, fundamentalism had that fighting spirit, and uh, they fought for things that are important. Um, they might have also fought in ways that created some residual problems. Yeah, but. just the, the unfortunate narrowing of what constitute orthodoxy. Yes, yes. Like, hey, you, you actually had a lot of allies that were a mill, and you should have embraced yes. them. It would have maybe gone a lot better in some ways if, if it wasn't so narrowly defined. But it was a wild time, which I think to your point too, I mean, yeah, our, our current cultural moment's different in a lot of ways. But in a lot of ways, things are, don't change in the sense of like there, there's a – history repeats itself in a lot of ways, and, and so you can see a ton of parallels. Yes, you can. Um, imagine living through the paradigm-shifting moment of Darwinism. Yes. And what are we living through now? A paradigm-shifting view of human nature. Yep. I mean, it's there's there's some fascinating parallels. Yeah. And I think you'll see the same, you will always see the same two instincts playing out. One, which is accommodation, and like, let's give up on some historic things because that's where things are going. And one that's more embracing the historic things, but maybe in a way that has a little bit too much of a fighting spirit of like, because we have to be defenders, now everybody's a threat, you know, and everything's a threat. And so I think those those will probably be the same two instincts we see in the next five and 10 years is an accommodating trend and a more fighting defensive trend that we probably should didn't, avoid. Didn't John Frame one time call some fighters in the press with like Machen's warrior children or yeah. something? He like used yes. that, that pejoratively. But John Frame is very a very kind person. Irenic and generous. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for letting me nerd out on history for that was 30, good. I learned 30 something minutes on the podcast. Uh, I hope that helps a few of you American listeners understand something about your heritage. Um, and something about the institutions even that are around us. You know, how did places like Grace College of the Bible or Grace University or Wheaton College or, you know, some of these institutions, what is their history? They, they have a history and um, it connects to this broader story. So hopefully that helps you understand a little bit of where you stand and a little bit of what the Lord might be calling us to in our day. And to the very least, you're better, uh, you know, a little more history now. So thanks for investing uh, 40 minutes to listen along. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.